Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 161, Kolkaz, part 1. Today I'll be discussing what was one of the most monumental and defining chapters of Soviet history, a process that occurred in fits and starts before finally morphing into iron-handed absolutism over the course of several years, and which upended the lives of millions. Out of all the topics that I talk about in relation to the USSR on this show, this very likely is one you have at least heard about, probably in relation to the millions who died during the transition and the millions more who suffered through it. At the time it unfolded, it was held up as a crowning achievement of the Soviet state, but was very quickly held up in the West as one of its highest crimes. I'm talking about the collectivization of Soviet farms and all the human impact that stemmed from it. And before I get ahead of myself and just to set expectations on what I'm covering today and the coming weeks, this episode will be about the first couple years of collectivization. Next week, I'll be taking an episode to discuss the changes to the lives of the peasants that collectivization caused. And finally, in two weeks, I'll continue the narrative into 1934, which, yes, will also cover the disastrous famine of 1932 and 33. This much attention does raise the question of why was collectivization so important in relation to the first five-year plan? As I've covered in the past couple weeks, factories required excess labor to actually staff them, uh, labor that was stuck out in the rural communes, communes that were at best reluctant partners of the Soviet government. Then there was the capital that was seen as bottled up in the countryside in the form of excess foodstuffs and unrealized export opportunities. Then there was also the fact that the communes paid only a certain amount of their crop and taxes, with the rest being delivered to the open market on conditions much more favorable to the communes than anyone else. If the communes could be replaced by state-run enterprises, then the state would save a gargantuan amount of money as agricultural produce could simply be extracted without haggling with the peasants on the open market. Set terms of purchase could be instituted, and that extra money freed up could then be used to purchase industrial goods from abroad. And that was before taking into account the extra grain that would cheaply come into state hands that could then be exported to get a hold of even more foreign currency with which to make purchases. And if the first five-year plan was going to involve a period of sacrifice in order to get the heavy industries I discussed last week up and running, the nation's food supply absolutely, positively, had to be under state management. If independent communes were informed that they could expect consumer goods shortages, they'd take their crops and store them away for a more profitable future to an even greater extent than they were already. The question in Moscow became what was to be done to get the agricultural sector working for the state and not its own immediate interests. The countryside of the USSR in 1928 was characterized by small holdings worked by families, with a band of wealthier peasants forming the detested, but to a certain extent tolerated Kulak group. Tolerated during the NEP years, that is. As I talked about last week, Kulaks were generally those who enjoyed large land holdings, raised significant herds of livestock compared to their neighbors, hired labor to work their operations, engaged in the selling of equipment or seed to other peasants, or some combination of all those things. Kulaks were oftentimes the heads of local villages, their wealth and prosperity being markers that they were the most qualified for local leadership, a trend that grated on the communists. 
The distinction between the wealthy kulaks and more, shall we say, blue-collar peasants was always nebulous and would change as the state sought out new enemies to crush or hold up as scapegoats for falling short of targets. There was also the fact that many peasants who had previously been considered poor had elevated themselves into a middle stratum that was distinctly secure, materially speaking, when compared to the poor peasants, but didn't approach the accumulated wealth of the, the traditional kulaks. Officials would complain that it was hard to distinguish who to be suspicious of. A peasant who had three cows in 1925 and then eight just a few years later could be argued to have become a kulak, but that seemed to many officials to be too great of a stretch to act on, and there were countless examples of this across the nation. Another characteristic was that mechanization was low, which was why the farms required so much labor in the first place. To the modernistic and scientifically driven communists, this state of affairs absolutely drove them up the wall. Their answer during the 20s had been the introduction of the Kolkhoz and the Sovkhoz as alternatives to private holdings. The Kolkhoz is your classic collective farm, and when I say Kolkhoz, I'm just meaning collective farm. It's an operation uh, theoretically managed by the farmers working it, kind of like a co-op, but still owned by the state. They managed it together with everybody getting to lend their input on, well, the decision-making, the choices of what was planted, what was grown, uh, what, what animals were raised, that sort of thing. They would pay their taxes and crops as usual, and then do with their excess as they pleased, just like on private holdings. It was just that the collective would decide what to do with that excess and not individual farmers. This setup was attractive because it provided farmers access to mechanization on account of state support for the Kolkhoz. Purchasing a tractor or a combine was way outside the reach of the vast majority of peasants, so the Kolkhoz had access to state-run machinery and tractor stations, or MTSs for short. For additional fee, paid in grain, or some other kind of produce, farmers were able to rent equipment that they otherwise couldn't buy. On paper, it was an attractive setup, especially to the poor peasants. Uh, the Sovkhoz, on the other hand, was an entirely state-run affair, where the farmers were hired on with state officials managing what was produced and how it was produced. The farmers were just straight-up wage employees. Simple as that. The Sovkhoz approach was greatly preferred by Moscow for obvious reasons, as the control granted by the setup would allow the state to better manage those operations, to deliver products that were specifically needed, and not just what the farmers on the spot preferred. Uh, for the same reasons, they were not terribly popular among the peasants, and their staffs were filled overwhelmingly by landless peasants who, for one reason or another, had run out of options. And the growth of both types of operations was embarrassingly slow during the 20s, especially for guys like Bukharin on the right, who promised that peasants would gravitate towards them, or at the very least the Kolkhoz, on their own accord. Now, if you know anything about the collectivization process under Stalin, you might be thinking that the Sovkhoz sounds like a much more familiar concept in relation to Soviet history. And you would be justified in thinking that. While I'm going to be using the term Kolkhoz an awful lot, uh, their independence was rapidly stripped away, and they were basically made to be entirely state-run affairs, the same as the Sovkhoz. And while the collectivized farmers would still get a share of what they produced, the state would absolutely get its own share. And the trouble was that the state's cut started getting bigger and bigger as the demands of economic expansion increased. The chairman of the Kolkhoz that run those operations wound up being state officials that delivered orders from on high, and, well, the similarities to a co-op that I might have mentioned earlier vanished in practice. 
Not that those chairmen rested easy, mind you, as they themselves were held liable for underperformance, and many of the peasants deliberately worked against them. Oh, and those MTSs I mentioned that uh, offered equipment rentals? Uh, you better believe that they were used as leverage to ensure cooperation. All that, of course, wasn't advertised too much in the official state line, and the prior independence that the Kolkhoz had enjoyed was highlighted by the state in order to get peasant holdouts on board. The reality that would greet them would be a little different. Even still, the preference among peasants when accepting to join one of the two was usually the Kolkhoz over the Sovkhoz. At least there, they still enjoyed some scraps of independence, including their own plot of land that they were free to manage as they pleased, as opposed to working on the Sovkhoz where they were just wage earners. But how was this grandiose project supposed to be accomplished? There were in the neighborhood of 25 million individual farms in the Soviet Union in 1928. The reach of the state was thin on the ground thanks to the retreat of 1921, and while the NEP was in the process of being dismantled, that hadn't yet translated to communist boots on the ground by the decade's end. And yes, I'm kind of treating the countryside as a foreign land the communists looked upon with suspicion, because, well, that's how it was. The peasants had spent the 20s keeping the state and the party at arm's length, uh, they openly refused to buy into the Soviet project, and when the terms of their relationship started turning in 1927, they responded by withholding their foodstuffs, regardless of the impact it would have on the cities. It was kind of like the years immediately after the revolution, except this time there wasn't a civil war raging, and the security apparatus was way, way better developed this time around, which didn't bode well for the peasants. Now, to be fair to them and their decision-making, there wasn't much indicating what was about to happen. Stalin had settled upon collectivization as an idea, at least by the start of 1928, given his lectures to the Siberian party bosses during his grain procurement stopover. But once back in Moscow, he retreated from immediate action. A part of that was due to his ongoing power struggle with the right opposition, but that doesn't entirely explain away the lack of planning for how to actually enact collectivization. This wasn't a novel idea among the communists. Stalin had plenty of supporters who were openly calling for it. Perhaps not as totally or as rapidly as it played out, but the sentiment was definitely there. But the vast planning bureaus weren't tapped to conduct studies or research options through 1928 and 1929. Kalinin, ever the man of the peasants, complained in 1929 that no research institutes had been set up to facilitate collectivization, while dozens were established for the industrial side of the first five-year plan. If you ever find yourself in disbelief over the scale of the body count stemming from forced collectivization, know that it wasn't just maliciousness that caused all the misery. What Stalin and his lieutenants set out to do was completely overhaul the nation's farms without having a plan on how to actually do that in place. Collectivization wasn't just a dramatic change, it was one executed on the fly, with plenty of ad hoc measures as problems cropped up. Even Stalin's apologists usually concede that maybe, just maybe, some trial runs of collectivization on large scales should have been attempted before transitioning the entire country all at once, without anybody really knowing what might happen. Oh, and just a quick aside since I mentioned Kalinin. Two weeks ago, I spent a significant chunk of time introducing many of the important Soviet figures of this period. And while I deliberately left some out so as not to overwhelm you, there is one I intended to include but totally forgot about. 
Mikhail Kalinin was another one of the odd men out that didn't really fit neatly within the inner circle that Stalin put together. He was a veteran of the old guard, being a founding member of the RSDLP alongside Lenin, and unlike a lot of communists, he came from a peasant background, part of the reason I'm introducing him here rather than making this little addendum uh, on last week's episode. Early in his life, he migrated to St. Petersburg, and from his early teens, he worked in the metalworking and railroad industries. His work in the latter profession allowed him natural mobility once he became a revolutionary. By the end of the 20s, he was considered something of a grand old man of the party and was personally very popular, which was sometimes to his detriment. Stalin certainly noticed that the enthusiastic applause for Kalinin would often rival his own during party get-togethers. Kalinin joined the Politburo in 1925 and from 1919 until his death in 1946, was the leader of the Congress of Soviets, the USSR's legislature, which made him the head of state on paper. I say on paper because, similar to how Molotov was effectively head of the government over in the Subnarkum, uh, none of that really mattered as far as the pecking order went. Kalinin hadn't been in the thick of the factional struggles of the 20s, and while he recognized Stalin as a danger, he ultimately fell in line. Likely, he didn't have faith in the various opposition leaders and actually being able to overcome the general secretary. Despite coming up in the party before Stalin, Kalinin was never caught up in the purges, although reportedly Stalin did consider getting rid of him at various points. Kalinin, though, quickly learned how to be quiet and stay inoffensive once Stalin really took over, and his peasant background was useful for propaganda. The peasants would always have a friend in Moscow as long as kind, folksy Kalinin was around. Alrighty, with that interlude over, back to the topic at hand. In keeping with the government not really having a coherent plan for collectivization, there were other attempts at securing the cooperation of agriculture before turning to that option. During the summer of 1928, Stalin began his campaign against class enemies and threats coming from within. If you haven't listened to it or don't remember, I would encourage you to listen to episode 104, where I covered the Shakti trial. While that incident occurred in the mining sector, it was just the start of a wave of engineered hysteria. One of the trademarks of the Stalinist era and his second revolution was identifying counter-revolutionary enemies that the people could prove themselves to be worthy communists by combating. And in addition to wreckers and saboteurs, this included the kulaks. And by mid-1928, the kulak designation had been expanded to include the much larger group of peasants that operated prosperous and productive farms, but didn't quite have the pull to launch bigger enterprises that had previously defined the Kulaks as a group. Basically, the middle peasants I mentioned earlier. Uh, This was obviously bad for them, because it made them targets in state propaganda as those who took excessively and charged outrageous amounts for their precious grain, all the while keeping the poor peasants downtrodden and away from opportunities that might have improved their lot in life. The OGPU, the secret police, subjected them to requisition visits as the grain crisis of 1928 rolled on. Just as a little note, the OGPU would be the main use-of-force group in the rural areas, the Red Army was considered too peasant in its composition, and therefore was used much more sparingly. These early efforts to try and crack the whip backfired, though, as many peasants who had been neutral to the state now saw that they were going to be treated as open enemies. As Rykov had warned, the deliberate propaganda and requisition attacks would be met with hostility. The OGPU reported that wild rumors of foreign invasion and the return of the white faction were spreading among the peasantry. Peasants were talking about gathering their tools and fleeing their farms to act as partisans. 
quote-unquote kulak lines of thought were spreading, according to reports. Even the poor peasants, the least hostile to the regime, could hardly be counted upon as allies. There had been a burst of enthusiasm from them in the summer of 1928 in response to propaganda that had been spread about the benefits of the Kulkaz, but when tens of thousands had sought to join those collective farms, the state proved unable to properly organize them. Which, yeah, not a great sign for when they'd be collectivizing millions very soon. There would be a temporary retreat later in the year, as even Kalinin was bold enough to criticize booting kulaks from their farms without a plan to keep their operations up and running afterwards. Kaganovich had even admitted at the end of the year that expanding the class enemy campaign to include the middle farmers had been a mistake without a forceful alternative plan to the existing status quo. But there would be no return to the days of the NEP. 1928 was the decisive year for Soviet agriculture, as the heavy-handed tactics employed by the state to try and assert control and to maintain the food supply destroyed the prior status quo entirely. A new one would have to be built up from scratch. And the actions of 1928 carried over in a big way to 1929. The requisitions had badly drawn down the food stockpiles that the peasants had accumulated, resulting in localized food shortages and a crippling lack of planting seeds. Mikoyan, who managed both foreign and domestic trade, gloomily reported that the middle peasants were opting to not grow as much as they had previously, not seeing a point if their excess was simply carted off by officials. Food shortages became rampant very quickly, and ration cards were introduced in the cities in February. Despite the harsh crackdown on private grain buyers, the remaining middlemen were moving more grain than ever thanks to price increases making it worth their while. The effect was that if something big wasn't done in a hurry, then the industrialization program was going to go off the rails before it could even get properly underway. The workers sure as hell weren't going to be able to boost production if they were all starving, after all. The worsening conditions of 1929 caused the government to backtrack on its retreat from collectivization the year prior, and the state ordered an acceleration in June of that year. Before the fall of 1929, the percentage of peasants working on the Kolkhoz amounted to about 4%. By October 1929, it had risen to 7.5%. Then, during the winter, an incredible shift occurred, and almost 60% of peasants were working on a Kolkhoz. This represented a breathtaking change and does bear some explanation. For example, both the Kulaks and middle peasants were informed that they could expect to hand over a significant portion of their harvest in the event that they remained on their private operations, so it wasn't like they were going to get a whole lot from holding out. The declared communists in the countryside were told in no uncertain terms that if they wanted to keep their positions in the party and their privileges befitting good comrades, that they had to join up. Poor peasants joined in droves as they were promised better land than what they had previously, as well as generous exemptions to taxes while they were starting out. In addition, the biggest of the kulaks were dispossessed of their holdings, making them available and tangible enticements for others to work through the kolkhoz. The kulaks in question suffered exile elsewhere in the Union, typically being assigned to labor units to help construct the new industries. Worse fates were in store later on down the road. And just to maybe clarify what was going on here with these massive sign-ups, the vast majority of peasants weren't actually moving anywhere. Entire villages were enrolled into the Kolkhoz, but this meant that land these communities farmed on were being consolidated into large units. They weren't moving into brand new communities. And the sudden spike in recruitment can also be explained by the changing demands coming from the center. 
The generous promises of better land and temporary tax exemptions offered by the state accounted for the relatively modest increase to a little over 7.5% of peasants being collectivized by the end of 1929. This was, in and of itself, almost double what had existed previously, and by the standards of the five-year plan was a marked success, as the plan didn't predict more than 15% of vote for all peasants being collectivized by the end of its term. But the funny thing about the five-year plan, though, was that the goals were never static. They were more suggestions to see what they could actually accomplish. If the collectivization rates doubled in just a few months, with only some promises of better land and a little additional investment... Well, what if they really put their backs into it? In November 1929, Stalin spoke of a great turn, and orders from the Politburo to the provincial party bosses was to collectivize as quickly and thoroughly as possible. They didn't say how, just that the local bosses should pull out all the stops and do it, somehow. It had been demonstrated already what could be done, and that autumn it morphed into a competition among the mid-level party bosses not to be outdone by each other. In a massively haphazard and disjointed manner, state power was brought to bear, coercing peasants to join the Kolkhoz. Weakened by the dislocations of the open markets being curtailed, the excision of the leading kulaks from their communities, and threats of OGPU reprisals, huge numbers of peasants complied, reaching that of 60% of all households that I mentioned earlier being collectivized by March 1930. This is some 11 million households we're talking about. If the state had only just managed to adapt itself to handle the doubling that had occurred up to the autumn of 1929, there was no possible way to handle the 12-fold increase by the end of the winter of 1930. There simply weren't the resources or the personnel to support this transition on hand. And the mass influx of peasants in that final stage of the campaign were also the most reluctant. And by reluctant, I of course mean they were threatened and cajoled by officials backed by OGPU intimidation and outright violence. Already the most obvious kulaks were being arrested or exiled elsewhere, their holdings confiscated entirely, and people were understandably scared and didn't want to be next. But they didn't accept their fates with complete cooperation. During that winter of switching over to the Kolkhoz, many, if not most, opted that instead of handing over their precious cattle and draft animals to the Kolkhoz administrators, they would instead slaughter them and sell the meat onto the food market. Cynically, the peasants sneered that the state would provide everything they needed to operate from there on out, no sense keeping hold of private animals that they would no longer get any benefit out of. This created that winter a rare abundance of meat in stores, but it was a temporary thing. The cattle weren't being replaced, and in their absence, production of animal-derived products would go into a shortfall. Milk and cheese from cows and eggs from chickens quickly came to be in short supply. This led to a turnaround that was almost as remarkable as the actual collectivization drive. On March 2, 1930, Stalin published his Dizzy with Success article in the Pravda newspaper. He applauded the successes of collectivization, but flatly stated that it had been taken too far. He accused provincial comrades with being overzealous and losing their faculties. It was a stunning display of reversal even by Stalin's standards, and oh boy, did the rural communists feel betrayed by him, but even he realized the gravity of the situation. The pressure to maintain the Kolkhoz was dropped, and almost as quickly as they had arrived, peasants decided to abandon them. By midsummer 1930, the percentage of collectivized peasants had dropped from almost 60% to a little less than 25%. Now, to be sure, the remaining peasants still represented a huge uptick in people working on the Kolkhoz compared to just a year previous. 
But as you might imagine, the incredible disruption caused by so many millions of people changing how they operated and made a living and then turning around and going right back to where they had started was incredible. The reason farming is so conservative is that you're really encouraged to do the same thing over and over again, because disruption could be fatal. Oh, and by the way, all those slaughtered animals weren't going to be coming back either. But this great retreat was, like all of Stalin's other great retreats, only temporary. Which does make me think that, boy, he retreated a lot in his life. But he always seemed to get his way in the end. Which, uh, kind of funny how that worked out. Not funny ha-ha, but just funny. The goal afterwards was still to encourage peasants onto the cold cause, but they had to increase the state's grip once they made the next attempt. And when the campaigns to collectivize the peasants restarted at the end of 1930, they would be more gradual affairs. Peasants would be targeted and forced onto the Kolkhoz in large numbers, but always in segments, and always following a semblance of a plan. In this manner, by 1935, some 85% of the peasants would be collectivized, although both due to immigration to the cities and the famines of years previous, that did mean that the task of hitting such a large percentage was less impressive than it would have been five years previous. There were simply fewer peasants around to collectivize. For the autumn of 1930, the focus was more on making sure the food supply was collected in good order. This time, there wouldn't be a loosey-goosey provincial co competition. A clear set of quotas for what was expected from the peasants was going to be imposed from Moscow, while the entire party was expected to make it a top priority. Mikoyan would be the point man to ensure that everything was done to expectation. And lo and behold, the Soviet government got extremely lucky in 1930, with favorable weather creating the most productive crop since 1913, at least on paper. The state was able to collect on 22 million tons of grain compared to the 16 million the year previous. But this success was hardly a windfall for the peasants, as the reporting of the total harvest was overstated by as much as 15%. The larger amount collected was, on the other hand, very much not overstated. So the rural areas were looking at not just food shortages, but seed shortages for the next harvest. All the while, grain exports increased from 200,000 tons in 1929 to 5 million tons in both 1930 and 1931. The money earned from those exports went directly back to the state, which was to say into the industrialization campaigns going on. The peasants, both private and the ones on the Kolkhoz, stepped up efforts to hide their harvests so they wouldn't be requisitioned away and leave them with too little to live on. There was also a disproportionate focus on private plots in the Kolkhoz as well. The big exception to the collectivized nature of these operations was that each family was allotted half a hectare of land to use as they saw fit. Uh, this is just a little over an acre of land and represented only 4% of farmland on the Kolkhoz. A tiny amount! But to the farmers, it was their land and would get special attention. At various times and places, nearly half of the Kolkhoz's output was coming from this 4% of land. And yes, this is very much so a sign of passive resistance coming from the peasants. Of the farm products to be produced by the Kolkhoz, half the potatoes and almost all the fruits and vegetables came from these plots. Belatedly, the Soviet government would rescind the order to automatically collectivize farm animals in mid-1932, which, you know, by then it was too late to prevent the massive slaughters of the nation's herds of livestock. But once that recension came into effect, the peasants would slowly begin to reacquire livestock for private use. 70% of the USSR's milk and meat and over 40% of the wool would come from these private plots. 
All in all, 20% of the union's marketed food, meaning the food on sale and not provided via state programs, was coming from these private plots. Blessed was the urban worker with a loving family back on the farm because they likely received care packages that added a little diversity to their diet. The farmers usually earned twice as much from these minuscule holdings than they did working on the collective, and the Kolkhoz chairman realized that they were making more from them than they were from the far, far larger collectivized operations. It was a damning indictment of the entire system, and an obvious embarrassment to the Soviet leadership. But they were so productive that there wasn't much that they could do. The private plot simply delivered too much food to be cracked down upon, and trying to do so would send the USSR into a famine far worse than the already devastating one soon to be suffered in 1932 and 33. What probably stayed Stalin's hand on the issue was probably that part of the point of the Kolkhoz was to establish control over the peasantry and ensure that the hand of the state was close to them. That objective had been achieved. As long as they stayed on the Kolkhoz, the success of the private plots could be endured. Now, on this episode, I've talked a great deal about the big picture of collectivization. And before I move on to the famine years and the state's reaction to them, I wanted to talk about the impact that this all had on the daily life of the peasants. That's why next week I'll be focusing more in on the ground level of the Kolkhoz, how the peasants supported or resisted the changes around them, and how rank-and-file communists pitched in to try and make the new revolution in the countryside work. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.